0: Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the next steps in UFO research. and My guest is Colm Kelleher. Colm was the guest on a previous video, and I'm going to link to it right now. If you haven't seen the earlier video, I highly recommend it. It will really help you to get a better handle on what we'll be talking about today. Colm is a biochemist with an extensive background in cellular and molecular biology. He has served as vice president and chief scientist for environmental control and life support systems at Bigelow Aerospace. Additionally, he has managed the day-to-day operations of the Advanced Aerospace Weapon System Applications Program of the U.S. government through a contract given to the Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies Organization, of which he was Deputy Administrator. He has served as Deputy Administrator for the National Institute for Discovery Science, and currently he plays a similar role at the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies. He is co-author with George Knapp of Hunt, for the Skinwalker, Science Confronts the Unexplained at a Remote Ranch in Utah. He is most recently co-author with George Knapp and James T. Lakatsky of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, an insider's account of the secret government UFO program. Column is based in the Las Vegas, Nevada area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Colm. It's good to be
1: with you once again. Good to be here again, Jeff. Uh, Hopefully we can carry on the same conversation.
0: Well, we had a fascinating conversation earlier. I'm encouraging all of our viewers to watch our previous interview, so uh, that'll give them a good footing to understand what we're going to do now, which is to go into much more detail about Not only the next steps in UFO research, but what you've already learned because there's so much we didn't cover. You had such an extensive project going on earlier. One of the most fascinating accounts in your book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, had to do with your own eyewitness observation of what I guess I'd have to describe as some creature like a dinosaur
1: that was a, a, an interesting um sequel to a very interesting dinner that occurred in Washington, DC, um, early on in the in the program. And this is when we had um essentially the best of the best from interagency uh groups of people um, at a dinner in Washington, DC. Lukatsky was there, Axelrod was there. Uh, Lou Elizondo, um, who at that time was not a uh, UFO rock star, he was part of the uh, the group uh, at the dinner. But uh, one of the people at the dinner was uh, a um, a special agent called um, Juliet Witt, who had a lot of experience being out in the field, including uh, some uh, some experience behind the lines in uh, in uh, Russia. Um, so. Um, one of the things that came up on the uh, during the dinner was a discussion about the Skinwalker Ranch and what kind of approaches could be used in terms of sensor deployment. Because uh, Juliet Witt had a, a, a good background in, in sensors. So um, anyway, uh, she arranged to uh, hop on a plane, come out to Las Vegas and uh, The night before the deployment to the ranch, uh, she met with myself and Robert Bigelow um, in the the corporate headquarters in Las Vegas, and we gathered all of the equipment that we were gonna bring with us, and that included just a few cameras and some uh, night vision equipment. So we flew on Robert Bigelow's private plane up to the small airport in Vernal, Utah, which is about 30 miles from the ranch, and then we drove to the the property. We got there sort of in the early afternoon. Myself and Juliette Witt uh, walked the property, and she seemed really engaged and sort of, um, you know, very interested in what all of the um, incidents that had happened on Skinwalker Ranch. So um, we walked the property. She took a lot of photographs. She went up on Skinwalker Ridge, Uh, She and I spent probably two hours going through the various parts of the property and I was pointing out to her some some landmarks where various incidents had occurred during the National Institute for Discovery Science part of the program, which had been a lot uh, earlier. So uh, night fell and um, about 10 o'clock, myself and Robert Bigelow and Juliet Headed down towards the west side of the uh, the property, and um, the the western part of the of the Skinwalker Ranch has two abandoned homesteads, and we call them Homestead Two and Homestead Three. We actually arrived at Homestead Two because Homestead Two, uh, from all of the previous experience on the property, had been kind of a a grand central station of where a lot of different activities had occurred. So. Uh, we we brought these uh, garden chairs with us so here we were out in the middle of nowhere um, on a small pasture um, about 30 yards away from um, homestead 2 when uh, and we were facing in opposite directions so uh, the chairs My chair was facing outwards. Robert's chair was facing outwards. Juliet Witt's chair was facing outwards. So we were actually covering about 360 degrees around the property. And at that stage, Juliet started getting um, fairly nervous because, you know, maybe it was the fact that it was absolute pitch darkness. Um, It was obvious there was nothing in the environment except darkness and you could see in the distance a couple of uh, faint lights of, of, of homesteads. But uh, Robert Bigelow got up from the chair and walked, uh, walked uh, south from where we were. I got up from my chair and walked um, essentially west towards, uh, there was a tree line close by, and Juliet Witt sort of said, okay, you know, I'm on my own out here. Uh, so she, she basically came in my direction and it was around that time when she was about 10, 15 yards away from me. Um, I, I, I saw this uh, creature that was coming from the south heading north. But the really strange thing about it was that it was not making any noise. And, you know, there, was, um, there were quite a few uh, leaves on the ground. There should have been rustling. I noticed that there was a silence also. There was not, no, um, no, 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 no. Evidence of any sort of crickets or any nighttime noises. It was almost like a cone of silence had descended on the on the property And so this creature was coming towards us um, And it passed us by about 30 feet away um, it looked to me like a um, It was a really unusual looking creature it had what looked like spines or not spines, but um kind of curves on its back, almost like a mini dinosaur. And it also had a, a very flat, large tail that looked, uh, the nearest equivalent I could think of was a beaver. But this this thing passed us about 30 feet away, heading north, completely ignored us as if we were not there. Um, both Juliet and I saw it from different vantage points. And I, I think it was about maybe in the region of, uh, maybe a hundred pounds or so. Um, it was not a not a huge animal, but it was motoring sort of silently. It went beyond the uh, the wall of the old homestead, uh, still motoring. And uh, myself and Juliet followed it to uh, to see where it was going. By the time we got to the edge of the homestead, it was gone. So this creature then uh, sort of must have come, gone around the the wall of the homestead and turned right, which would have would have put it out of our view. So we ran up to that area and uh, there was nothing, absolutely nothing available. We couldn't see anything. At that stage, we were making a reasonable amount of noise. So uh, Robert Bigelow came from the south and joined us. And the three of us looked around the property in the area just north of that old homestead. We could not find any trace of this this creature, the 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 creature itself to me um, looked looked as I said like a mini um, a, a mini version of uh, of a dinosaur with um, with these uh, ridges on its back um, and a, a sort of a flattened tail. Um, it was pretty dark, but it was uh, it was light enough to see that this thing was very unusual looking. And the absolute silence, I guess, was, was, was what really confounded me.
0: Now, earlier you described the evening as being pitch black, so, but you had night vision equipment with you. Were you using it?
1: No, we, we, we basically were transfixed by this, um, you know, this, I, I, I guess it was the combination of the Oz effect or this cone of silence that that descended on us. And, um, you know, the fact that this was a very unusual creature. It also happened very, very quickly, um, relatively. So um, we did engage our night vision binoculars when we were searching for the creature, but uh, we did not switch them on um, in the heat of the moment. And I can tell you from personal experience on that property, um, the... The lightning speed with which these events happen um, usually precludes engaging, unless you've got a sensor, a a fixed sensor that's running all the time, um, it tends to be very, very difficult to engage something that happens extremely quickly, unexpectedly. um, And, you know, by the time you engage the equipment, this creature was gone uh, by the time You know, I started looking uh, with night vision binoculars.
0: Now, in our very earlier interview, our first interview, your first sighting that you described was what one would have to call a UFO. It was an object in the sky that made a hairpin turn practically uh, right above you. Uh, Do you think that the creature that you and Juliet both saw that evening is, in some sense, related to UFO
1: appearances? That's a really good question, um, because Skinwalker Ranch, as you know, is sort of uh, the, the the center point for a lot of anomalies. But um, primarily, uh, it is also the center for a lot of sightings of uh, UFO objects. That that UFO that I personally sighted uh, was one of many Um, quote-unquote nuts-and-bolts objects that were cited by various people over a 25-year period. So, you know, uh, the the original Sherman family, for example, um, were absolutely deluged by a combination of nuts-and-bolts-type metallic-looking craft. At the same time, they had cattle mutilations. At the same time, they had a lot of poltergeist activity, objects appearing, disappearing. Um, discarded voices and all of that. So, uh, but they also had this um, these uh, nuts and bolts UFOs. Um, when we took over the property, I had that sighting of 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 a nuts and bolts object. Um, Axelrod, when he was on the property uh, in two thousand and nine, also um, saw and actually photographed a what looked like a nuts and bolts metallic looking craft in the Uh, in the daylight. And then after 2016, when Brandon Fugle uh, purchased the property, um, he is on the record as as citing uh, nuts and bolts craft. So you've got this sort of um, 25 year history of what looked like metallic objects appearing and disappearing on this property and overlaid at the same time in the same place. You've got a um, a long history of unusual-looking creatures, um, cattle mutilations, poltergeist activity, um, a whole a whole smorgasbord of unusual anomalies. So, are they related? Is the question? They're happening at the same time. They're happening at at, at the same location. Um, I would, from a, from a, a, a hypothesis point of view suggests that they're probably related.
0: Now I'm going to digress a little bit, but I think it's important because many of the commenters on our previous video noticed that uh, you refer to Axelrod, and as I recall it's a pseudonym to hide the identity of the actual person, but many people have pointed out that in his book penetration. Ingo Swan uses the same name for a mysterious individual who accompanied him on a, what appears to be a remarkable UFO sighting somewhere uh, up north, maybe Alaska. And people are saying, could this be the same Axelrod? And so I wonder if you could
1: clear that up. The, the answer to the question, is it the same Axelrod, is no, it is not the same Axelrod. Um, when we were casting around for a pseudonym for this um, high level individual from the Navy who had top secret SCI clearances, um, we did come up with the name Axelrod as a homage to, the, uh, the, to Ingo Swan's book, Penetration. So the name Axelrod is no accident. Uh, we, we were basically tipping our hat to what was a very fundamental book Um, about the the ET UFO topic that Ingo Swan penned, but um, after that, there's really no uh, correspondence. Uh, The individuals are completely different.
0: It would seem to me, given that it wasn't just the Skinwalker Ranch, but it was neighboring ranches as well, in that particular area of northern Utah, where these things occurred, that People have often used the word a portal, like a doorway between dimensions. And if, if such a thing existed, that might account for a wide range of manifestations that seem to appear and disappear quickly as if they're coming in and out of a portal that has some sort of geographic specificity.
1: In the Hunt for the Skinwalker book, we described a a series of events that happened in August of 2007 um, that uh, where there were two investigators upon on the Skinwalker Ridge overseeing the Homestead 2, which is the location that I just talked about, this unusual creature that we had, uh, that myself and Juliette Witt had seen. So these two uh, people were just packing up at the end of a very long night of watching. It was in the sort of 2 a.m. area Um, and uh, they had just sort of packed all their equipment up when one of the individuals noticed down on the track near Homestead 2 there was this sort of faint dull yellowish light um, that had appeared on the track and they couldn't figure out if it was light reflecting off a piece of glass or it, it didn't look particularly interesting but as they watched it it seemed to be getting bigger and bigger and bigger so at that stage they decided Time to unpack the gear. So one of them unpacked the uh, night vision binoculars, generation three night vision binoculars, and the other guy uh, unpacked a, a camera with. Uh, at that time in the in the late nineteen nineties, they were still using infrared film uh, in cameras. So um, they they started looking at the uh, at this light as it got bigger and bigger on this track. The guy looking, um, you know using the infrared film uh, was taking long exposure shots but could see nothing except this um, three foot diameter now at this stage, um, yellowish light that was appearing on the track. Um, The other guy through uh, night vision binoculars saw something completely different. And that was a three dimensional, what looked like some sort of a tunnel. And through this tunnel, there was a um, he described it later when we debriefed him as a, a sort of a, a completely black uh, humanoid looking creature that was physically crawling through a tunnel of light. Um, and this tunnel was about three, or four feet located off the ground. And so this creature sort of elbowed its way through the tunnel, um, stood up on the ground and disappeared into the night. And these two guys, um, you know, the other guy with the, uh, with the, the camera had not seen anything, uh, but through the night vision binoculars, this guy had seen this panoramic view of what looked like a tunnel um, and something crawling through the tunnel. So, you know, when you mentioned portal, you know, that, that incident immediately came to mind. But, you know, in terms of the, the different types of creatures that were, um, that were seen, uh, I referred in our last conversation to the uh, the fact that the OSAP program had sort of meticulously started interviewing people in a three to five mile radius around the property to see if Skinwalker Ranch was sort of um, unique. We already had data from the NIS era that it probably wasn't unique, but we compiled over the, a two-year period um, literally dozens of different uh, testimonies from different people in the three to five mile radius around the ranch and um, many, many of them described uh, strange creatures, particularly creatures that looked like um, um, four legged creatures that were standing on two legs and able to, to move on two legs. So in the last uh, conversation we had, I described this uh, creature that Axelrod and his family had encountered all the way out on the East Coast. Well. A lot of the interviews that we conducted um, around Skinwalker Ranch actually documented a plethora of sightings, and these were not particularly re- necessarily recent sightings, but they, they they were sightings of these two-legged creatures that that or four-legged creatures that were standing on two legs and could could um, could walk. So we um, we interviewed a lot of these people, and we actually got a map of the location that that a Google map of, of Skinwalker Ranch and the area sur- surrounding Skinwalker Ranch. And on that map, we located all of the witness sightings and we asked the witnesses, what direction was, were these creatures moving in, in general? And once we plotted them on a Google map, um, we could see this series of lines um, that seemed to be going from Southeast to northwest, and, and these these plots on the on the Google map, they even looked, they almost looked like a series of straight lines that were running from southeast to northwest. Some of them crossed the Skinwalker Ranch, and some of them didn't. And um, so the next step that we did as part of the OSAP investigation was that we located a series of game cameras along these. We hypothesized that these lines represented some sort of travel routes or migration routes for these creatures. So just towards the end of the OSAP program, we had located multiple different game cameras on these routes to see if we could detect anything, anything on the game cameras. And the program ended at exactly the wrong time because we had the capacity uh, we think to record and, and, you know, obtain evidence, apart from eyewitness evidence, of these creatures. So when the
0: government discontinued their funding, uh, everything shut down at that point?
1: Yes, everything uh, was shut down. There was a uh, three-month no-cost extension from September to December for OSAP to wrap up all of the different projects. So by the t- time December 2009 came around, um, everything was shut down. The 50 people who had been f- employed full-time uh, during OSAP were essentially let go. Uh, standard government contractor uh, sort of uh, rule of thumb is when, when a when a project is, is terminated, contract is terminated, um, the team is usually either reallocated or disbanded. And in our case, um, there was really no other way except to disband the teams, which I felt was a a great pity. I mean, if I had my choice in the future for a future UFO program, I would recapitulate OSAP and carry it on for five years, not two years, because uh, we had a well-oiled machine that was beginning to rock and roll. And at the end of the OSAP program, it came very abruptly due to a whole bunch of different political intersections and um, interagency uh, unease. So um, if I had a choice, I would recapitulate that program for five years.
0: Now, a lot of people would say that the government isn't really capable of managing a program dealing with phenomenon of, of such high strangeness. You've had experience both with the government and with the private UFO groups. Do you think private funding and and private UFO groups have greater capability in this area than the government would?
1: Um, I think there's a case to be made for a public-private partnership, so to speak. So a, a and and the Defense Intelligence Agency um, that contracted Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies did have this public-private partnership. And we were very, very lucky that we were able to interact so easily and so closely uh, with uh, James Lekatsky and his team out in Washington, DC. And I would guess a lot of programs might not have been so uh, seamless and, uh, and well executed, but we were very, very lucky. So if I had had a choice, it would it would be uh, to combine a public private partnership we see in the aerospace industry for example NASA and SpaceX have have got uh, public private partnerships down to a T where uh, NASA is not overt overtly intrusive into uh, the way SpaceX operates and at the same time um, it allows the uh, the resources of the United States government to work in concert with. Uh, with a, a a private enterprise corporation, uh, that would be my uh, my idea but a, a government only uh, UFO um, program is in my opinion is not going to be very effective.
0: Well, going back to the notion of, of a portal or of some sort of geographic specificity, I understand that you, you looked around the world to see if there were other areas that seemed to be hotspots for paranormal activity, and it does seem as if of sort, phenomena of this sort—phenomena of this sort—are not evenly distributed. They seem to center around particular locations.
1: Yes, that's correct, and and um, we we did during the National Institute for Discovery Science uh, days, uh, we we did spend a lot of time in some alternative locations like Dulce, New Mexico, which is this uh, located on the Yucarilla Apache Reservation in Dulce, New Mexico. It too has a very strange history of a combined activity of. UFO uh, sightings by multiple members of the Apache tribe. And at the same time, uh, lots of Bigfoot sightings, lots of unusual creature sightings, a lot of poltergeist activity, a lot of orbs uh, are seen in in that vicinity. So uh, we spent a lot of time in Dulce, New Mexico. We also uh, paid close attention to Uh, the Crestone, Colorado area, the San Luis Valley, which uh, Christopher O'Brien has mapped out uh, over the years in terms of unusual activity. And we got a lot of reports of the same thing overlaid upon uh, UFO activity. There was a lot of uh, reports of unusual creatures and a lot of spooky poltergeist type of activity there. But um, we also know Yakima uh, Reservation up in Washington, And on the East Coast, there are several hotspots in New York State. Uh, Perm, Russia is another uh, another, uh, place that we've heard of. Um, And and even uh, the the Hestland Valley in Norway, even though it's been primarily uh, a large focus of an autonomous um, UAP surveillance network that takes autonomous uh, sensor recordings. Um, there has been quite a quite a lot of um, stories coming out of the Hestelin Valley of other more paranormal type activity, which the engineers have not spent a, t- a lot of time um, working on. But you know, um, there is a there is a uh, suggestion at least of uh, paranormal activity. Um, I attended a, a, a conference recently at Esalen, and. Um, I, I had some really interesting interactions with um, a guy from uh, Colombia who had uh, actually described a, um, a location in, in Colombia that had, or I think it was Argentina actually, uh, that had a lot of activity that very closely paralleled the activity on Skinwalker Ranch. So I think Skinwalker Ranch just happens to be uh, very well studied over the last twenty-five years, but I don't think it's a particularly unusual location um, for these uh, these so-called hotspots. And you know, we really have no idea um, why these hotspots occur in these particular locations on the planet.
0: Were you able to identify, for purposes of a scientific control, areas where? Paranormal phenomena just don't seem to occur at all.
1: Um, we did not spend a lot of time um, investigating areas where there was uh, there were there were no f- no phenomena. That is a that is a, a, a really important part of a, a longer study. We were in the sort of initial um, data gathering parts of, of these studies, both during the National Institute for Discovery Science and also during uh, during the OSAP program. So I think your suggestion has to be included as a, as a part of future investigations, but we did not spend a lot of time investigating areas where there was no activity.
0: I'm under the impression that uh, researchers have looked into the question of, could this just be some psychological phenomena? And if, if that were the case, one would expect to find more of it in areas of dense population, whereas it seems as if these things occur in areas where there's less density of population.
1: That is true. But um, also, um, another point associated with this is that um, there is anecdotal evidence of um, these Creatures, quote unquote, tend to leave physical impressions. Um, I, during our last conversation, I mentioned uh, the upright uh, wolf-like creature that seemed to be associated with some deep claw marks on the on the uh, uh, the tree where the uh, the wife had seen this creature on their property. Um, another example of that is that we interviewed some people about a mile. Uh, it was southwest of the Skinwalker Ranch, who had in, interacted with the, uh, one of these uh, two-legged uh, or four-legged creatures on their property who was running away from them. The guy had a rifle with him and shot at this creature. Um, and. He was absolutely certain he had hit the creature as it was running away, did not stop the creature, but they found blood on the air in the area. This was about a year prior to the OSAP program interviewing this individual. But um he was adamant that uh, this creature had bled after uh, after being shot. So um there are I think the it's more than psychological uh happenings. I think these uh, what what are seen or perceived, also interact with the environment and leave physical traces. Um, I'm not saying that they're not psychological uh, happenings, I'm just saying that they also leave physical traces.
0: Back to the portal hypothesis, there's a lot of uh, speculation, not only in science fiction, but among serious scientists having to do with the multiverse, with parallel universes, there's a lot of mathematical work going on and theoretical physical work going on in, in that realm. Have have you interacted with any of the theorists who uh, are looking into these things?
1: One of the NID scientists, uh, Eric Davis, um, has done a lot of work on, uh, on uh, wormhole physics. And uh, he worked a lot with uh, Hal Puthoff. And to the extent that Hal Puthoff is also... Uh, done a lot of theoretical physics analysis on on the so-called zero point uh, field and also uh, metric engineering. Uh, we have interacted with those people but uh, I guess from from our my perspective um, the the UFO um, future of UFO discourse um, does, in my opinion, have a future, with the sort of the burgeoning um, increase in activity regarding human consciousness. And I think that uh, from I'm, my background is biological. So I guess I, I tend to more gravitate towards people like Bernardo Kastrup who, is, um, who has done a lot of work. Uh, I noticed you had him on your program recently. Um, I, I came across his work a couple of years ago. I've seen some of his blogs on Scientific America. Um, I, I've read um, most of uh, his book, the, the Idea of the World. Um, I also, um, you know, I uh, have looked at Donald uh, Hoffman who is um, from UC Irvine. And again, he has some very unusual, um, you know, viewpoints on the role of consciousness. Jeffrey Kripal, who I've worked with uh, quite a lot I'm a, a big fan of Ger- Jeffrey Kripal because of the work that he was uh, was doing with the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies as a part of the uh, essay competition. Um, I, I, I'm i aware of Federico Fahin, who has done a lot of work on consciousness, and Edward Kelly from the University of, of Virginia. So I would say in the last 10 years, um, there's been a revolution in the uh, the focus on consciousness as being primary. So, if I had to uh, look for low-hanging fruit, um, somewhat low-hanging fruit for the for the future of UFO study, um, I would I would probably um, focus on the the impact of these new visions of consciousness and what happens. Uh, is the is the UFO phenomenon in any way relevant to these new visions of consciousness? Um, the I am aware of the theoretical physics um, behind uh, be, behind some of these uh, portal theories, but I'm not a physicist, so I don't tend to gravitate in in that direction. But I would see, you know, um, there's plenty of ripe. Uh, low hanging fruit there also well, given
0: that your background is in biology let's let 's focus on that for a bit. One of the issues uh, that we discussed last time was the hitchhiker effect that uh, once people are exposed to the phenomena in, in one location and they travel back to their home thousands of miles away the Phenomena, whatever it might be, seems to follow them. And as I recall, the individual who witnessed this small dinosaur-like creature with you, Juliet Witt, if that's her real name, I, I think it is, also experienced the hitchhiker effect.
1: Yes, she absolutely did. It is not her real name because we were we were told by the uh, the Pentagon that any. Any people who are active duty military or currently with working within the United States government and the Pentagon, and she is, um, we we were obliged to change their names um, as a condition of publishing the book. So uh, that is not her real name. But um, Juliet Witt did uh, did confront um, a lot of unusual activity when she got back. Um, some of that unusual activity. Um, it sort of really seemed to focus on her roommate, um, who eventually, because there were so many um, very strange poltergeist activity, uh, he woke up several times uh, with uh, black humanoid shadows literally over his bed. Um, he was absolutely terrified, so he he left. And um, so, but Juliet Witt was uh, told me. It, you know, about one incident where she and a friend were were downstairs in the uh, they had a a small uh, rack with wine bottles on it. And two of those wine bottles literally flew across the room right in front of them and smashed against the wall. Um, You know, it was a very sort of graphic and somewhat violent demonstration. Um, On another occasion, she was just driving out, out of her home. When this very large she described it as a very large owl literally attacked her car i mean it it came down and uh, banged against her her the front of her car and left uh, claw marks on on the paint of her car. so she was uh, pretty terrified. She has a young daughter who has also seen a lot of activity, including and this is this is an aspect that I find quite interesting. Uh, she, she has seen people who were obviously deceased. So um, I have uh, also interviewed other people who have who have had the hitchhiker effect and they have reported also seeing uh, people who are deceased. So there is this weird overlap between uh, quote unquote the afterlife and some of these hitchhiker effects that uh, have emanated from Skinwalker Ranch. Um, I should also point out that um, Skinwalker Ranch is not the only location uh, that give rise to these so-called hitchhiker effects. We had had some, uh, one particular uh, medical injury case that we investigated that ended up having a, a hitchhiker effect and both of the individuals involved in that case had nothing whatever to do with Skinwalker Ranch. Um, we th- this occasion I'm thinking of there was a uh, biotechnologist who was driving um, on his way home to Bend Oregon uh, he had his uh, teenage daughter in the car just just back from college and uh, she noticed um, out out beside the road where they were traveling they were doing maybe 75 80 80 miles an hour uh, three bright blue objects that seemed to be um, uh, floating erratically and moving very erratically quickly and stopping and and starting again um, as they were driving past. Um, Immediately upon seeing these objects, it seemed like all three objects came right towards the car. It was almost like it was a signal one object went straight across their windshield and they saw it moving right across their 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 windshield the other two actually came into the car one of them went right across the dashboard in front of the two uh, people and the other entered the driver the guy the biotechnologist guy in his left shoulder went right through his body at the, uh, the upper chest area and exited his right, his right shoulder. His daughter watched this <clears throat> f- um, you know, flying out in front of her and it exited the, the car. This guy started having um, health effects within a very short period of time after that incident, um, began to get h- headaches the next morning uh, woke up with sunburn on the on the left hand side of his face. Um, also, it, uh, his left eye and left ear were starting to uh, swell up. Uh, started uh, a lot of fluid started accumulating. Um, uh, began to lose hair um, within probably three or four days after this incident. And um, you know, long story short is that. There was a, uh, phys- a, a, a MD, PhD, uh, one of our investigators spent a lot of time with this guy over many, many months. And actually it went into years. Um, we had serial blood samples. We had many other measurements from the, the health status of this guy. So we, were, we actually were fortunate to have uh, blood samples from before the incident and also many blood samples after the incident, so we were able to um, actually track changes in his immune system over time, um, as uh, be- both before and after this incident. And so we could we could see st- uh, multiple changes in the neutrophil lymphocyte ratios. Uh, we could see as as this this guy eventually came down with a very rare form. Of uh, of ductal carcinoma. Luckily, it was in situ, so it was it was not metastatic, and so within two or three years, this guy uh, was was okay health wise. But for that couple of years after the incident that had happened with this blue object that went right through his body, um, he had a, a plethora of health effects, which were actually extremely well documented, but the the daughter, um, his daughter who was beside him in the car as a passenger, did not have any adverse health effects. But when she went back to her uh, college in Connecticut, um, her roommates started reporting. There was a, an explosion of strange activity in their household in Connecticut. Um, there was four people who shared this house and all of them reported these um, strange noises in their, in their homes. Orbs would fly through their rooms. Um, unusual creatures uh, were, were seen in the vicinity. So again, this hitchhiker effect um, that had absolutely nothing with Skinwalker Ranch seemed to be associated with this very dramatic medical injury case that involved the uh, interactions with these small UFOs.
0: The small UFO was like an orb some people, uh, I think, associate them with a, another poorly understood phenomenon, probably little more than a, a label uh, called ball lightning.
1: Yes, uh, and, and uh, we, we have actually uh, looked at that uh, in terms of um, the correlations between ball lightning and, uh, and these orbs. And Eric Davis, who used to work for National Institute for Discovery Science, did a lot of uh, close examination um, in terms of energy, uh, energy production, also the way these orbs um, in many cases seem to move. um, They seem to be reactive. They seem to to move quote unquote intelligently. They seem to be able to dodge out of the way. When you put a flashlight on, they can move around uh, away from flashlights so um, there was a, a number of different discrepancies between ball lightning um, in terms of piezoelectric um, generation of ball lightning or, and associated with ball lightning that did not seem to be the case with respect to these orbs that had been documented both on this uh, Skinwalker Ranch and in various locations like this place in Oregon. I
0: might be incorrect about this, but I seem to recall in, in your book that this particular scientist in Oregon also had a dream shortly after he, he was invaded by this orb. And, and in the dream, it was as if there were some sort of entities or figures who were, who were endeavoring to heal him.
1: That's correct. Um, he had a very, very vivid dream within hours of this object that traveled through him. And uh, in the dream, as you mentioned, um, this creature, could he could only see it um, out of his peripheral vision, so he did not have a, a, a good description of the creature, sort of uh, went into his left shoulder with some, either his finger or some instrument. And um, uh, basically, it seemed to uh, the, the biotechnologist, that this, guy, this entity was trying to heal him. And there was uh, words to the effect like, this should improve over time, or there was some, some um, positive affirmations from the entity to the effect that um, this should not cause you any trouble.
0: And as I recall in the book, the conclusion was that whatever occurred whatever harmful effect occurred to this individual was not deliberate like uh, these UFO phenomena may end up harming people but it's sort of in passing accidental that they don't seem to have uh, harmful intentions
1: yes that that is that is correct we we were never able to document any cases that we looked at that seemed to be um, in that category of, um, you know, a, a deliberate intent to harm humans. Uh, there was one exception that, that we came across and that was another medical injury case that we investigated closely in Georgia. And that was um, when when this guy, uh, he had his son and some friends in a tent outside the backyard, uh, went outside um, to, to check on them his dog was really barking vociferously outside so he was also investigating the dog barking he looked up and right above his property was this um very very large silent black triangle that was floating above his property i mean making no noise whatsoever um he it's very difficult to estimate altitude at night but he estimated it was very low, you know, less than a thousand feet away from him. And so he, he tried to take cell phone pictures. His cell phone would not work. So we went uh, back into his house um, and, and took a uh, a large, um, very powerful flashlight that he had, went back out and, and shone the flashlight at, at this object to see if he could see it, you know, more clearly. Within a, a second of him flashing the flashlight at it, a blue beam from this triangular object hit him squarely. Uh, it was like a, a fairly intense beam that he could feel the heat. So he turned around to protect himself and sort of uh, crouched away from the beam. But this um, this beam actually uh, started burning him. So he went, went inside to, to get away from it. And he looked at this object outside the window for the next couple, or from his vantage point inside the house through the window. And this object took off at a very, very high rate of speed um, within a few minutes. But um, again, it was the same kind of medical injury. Um, He he woke up with a lot of sunburn. He had a strong metallic taste in his mouth. Um, He started losing his hair. Again, we had the physician scientists um, it, interact with him, taking blood samples, went to the emergency room, went to hospitals, and he had a long, long-term um, health effects that he eventually, after a couple of years, began to get get better, but he had a lot of different negative uh, health effects. So you, you could ask the question, um, that blue beam that came from the triangular-shaped object um, was that some sort of a instantaneous reaction that had um that had no sort of um aggressive intent or uh what was it aggressive intent um we we could not you know discriminate between something where he was in the wrong place at the wrong time or the biotechnologist in Oregon happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time we could never definitively um nail down that there was hostile intent in terms of any of these uh activities we did document for the purposes of the osap deliverables that you know being in the vicinity of these ufos sometimes is bad for your health but that's a very different thing from saying that these are actually a threat because a threat implies intent and uh, we really literally have no idea in terms of what the quote-unquote intent of these objects are. So we were not able to deliver a report to the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency saying that these UFOs were a threat. We, we, were, we did not have the data to back that up There's so many
0: diverse phenomena that we're talking about here—orbs and triangle UFOs and dinosaur-like creatures and wolf-like creatures that walk on two legs and and portals and and tunnels. There is a possibility that these are all distinct, unrelated phenomena that are just more common than people appreciate because they're so bizarre. They don't get reported in the mainstream media or. They might be all related. They might be a single phenomenon that phenomenon that manifests in in many different ways. Uh, I have to assume we we really aren't ready to answer that question yet.
1: I would agree with you there. I I don't think we are um, ready to answer that question. I mean, when when you say the um the this sort of collocation uh, phenomenon, I I was just thinking of another. Um, location up near Malmstrom Air Force Base, um, we interacted a lot during National Institute for Discovery Science with Captain Keith Wolverton, um, who wrote a very interesting book on the cattle mutilation phenomenon called "Mystery Stalks the Prairies or Prairie." And um, he was a he was a captain in the in the police force. Um, adjacent to Maelstrom Air Force Base up in Great Falls, Montana during the late 1970s, when literally all hell broke loose, when the, um, when the Air Force Base started reporting a whole bunch of UFOs that were interacting with the Air Force Base, and they would, they would launch aircraft to try to intercept these UFOs and have absolutely no success regarding the interactions. But, Simultaneously with these UFO, with the UFO activity, um, Wolverton and his group of police officers, and they had a veterinarian on staff, documented an enormous number of cattle mutilations right around, ringing around Malstom um, Air Force Base. They also interviewed a lot of these uh, ranchers who were having this these effects, and the ranchers told them about a lot of unusual Creatures. They were. They. They were reporting Bigfoot type creatures, um, unusual creatures that were coming out of the night, uh, orbs in their homes, poltergeist activity. So, um, you know, Captain Wolverton would get a call from the base commander um, asking him for help in terms of tracking UFOs, and at the same time, Wolverton would co- would cooperate with the uh, the people on Malstrom air force base but here we had you know missile bases that were were getting interfered with by ufos and at the same time this underbelly of extremely anomalous phenomena that were occurring so the co-location and and, and the temporal sort of coincidence of these phenomena with ufos that were actually causing national security concerns at Malstrom Air Force Base was really no different from what was occurring on Skinwalker Ranch or Dulce, New Mexico, or, you know, the Hestland Valley or any of these locations. But I would hesitate to say that they are cause and effect. Um, You know, I've heard theories that, you know, quote unquote portals open and a lot of this stuff gets dragged through when uh, when UFOs come through portals, they they automatically drag through a lot of these phenomena. But that's absolute speculation, and um, I I much prefer the whole focus being on field research, because I don't think we have anything like enough data um, to to start speculating on what these uh, cause and effect relationships might be. I think you know, the the future of the UFO phenomenon lies in additional research. And I, I, you know, I would be very hopeful that maybe something might transpire out of the the recent uh, passage of the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, which um, does include this uh, very provocative amendment in the NDAA that seems to, indicate that they might take UFOs seriously. Um, But, you know, there's really no telling in terms of how easy it is for the United States government to downplay uh, UFO activity and UFO investigations.
0: On the other hand, it does seem as if other governments have uh, their own research programs going on.
1: Yes, I, I, and, um, you know, Senator Reid recently passed away and he was Instrumental in the um, in the generation of the OSAP program because one of his primary concerns is exactly what you have just alluded to—that other countries uh, probably have a less restrictive view on in terms of uh, UFO research—and uh, one of the one of the projects that the OSAP program undertook was the uh, the full translation. Of a set of documents that um, that came out of then Soviet Union, um, that that was ca- that were carried out of the the uh, Soviet Union by investigative journalist George Knapp in the uh, in the early '90s, just during the period of Perestroika, and there was a lot of documentation that he was given by people literally in back alleys um, in the. Uh, in the what used to be the Soviet uh, Soviet Union, but uh, OSAP program went through a process of translating these documents. We had analysts looking at these documents, and we assembled a uh, an organizational chart for the Soviet Union focus on the UFO topic back in uh, early 1991, and we were astonished at the level of sophistication. Of uh, what we saw in terms of this organizational chart, there were literally dozens of government departments. Uh, top universities were part of this. Um, there was a a, um, a shadowy unit called Unit Seven Three Seven Nine Zero that seemed to be very much involved with the um, the, the orchestration of the Soviet Union's UFO uh, program. But that program was thirty years old. It was uh, we documented it um, being full up and running in either nineteen ninety 1990 or nineteen ninety one, and compare that to um, you know the Johnny Come Lately focus on 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 the the sort of bare acknowledgement of interactions between UFOs and F eighteen pilots, air, air, aircraft carrier incidents that happened off the East and West Coast, the United States, and Senator Reid was very concerned about this, that the United States was definitely behind the curve in terms of the level of sophistication of these programs. And uh, we don't know what China's doing either. I, um, I suspect that the, um, that the level of focus on these kinds of activities um, is the same in China as it is in, the, so in, in Russia. Uh, but I have no way of, uh, of, of validating that. And there's
0: also countries like Brazil and France to consider.
1: The Brazilian uh, government especially has had a long-standing um, high level of interest in the UFO topic. Uh, one of the OSAP programs that we conducted was also focused on the, the so-called Colaris incident, uh, incidents that happened on the northeast coast of Brazil in the late 1970s in which um, the Brazilian Air Force intelligence um, set up camp on Colorados Island because the UFO intrusions were so frequent and so intensive over a three to four month period in the late 1970s. They documented, they filmed, they interviewed uh, eyewitnesses Many people were injured and a couple of people were allegedly even killed as a result of these UFOs. If ever I was to um, suggest that there was an exception to this, uh, th- this idea that UFOs have never harmed humans, um, I would say that the Polaris Island incidents uh, might be an exception to this. But again, uh, we have no way of documenting beyond historical documentation. And the OSAP program did generate a very large document that summarized all of the ac- activities in uh, in Brazil. But we were also very fortunate that the uh, one of the leaders in the uh, Brazilian government, a guy called General U- Uchoa, um, was very um, amenable to... Um, Brazilian government cooperating uh, with uh, release of, of um, documents pertaining to various aspects of the UFO phenomenon. So but the Brazilian government has been, by and large, very, very open in terms of release of large volumes of documents, and many of those documents do pertain to the so-called Operation Prato or, or the Colaris incidents. Well, there's MUFON,
0: I know you've had extensive interactions with MUFON. There have been other civilian organizations involved in, in gathering data related to UFOs, probably more than a dozen just in the United States. What's your evaluation of their capability?
1: I believe, um, and we're talking from personal experience with the OSAP program, because we, we had a, um, a contract with MUFON, um, that 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 uh, ran during 2009. Uh, MUFON has the has the great fortune to cover all 50 states in the United States. With um, they have a a web of uh, investigators and state directors that is um, quite efficient in terms of gathering information on the UFO phenomenon. So back in 2009, we contracted with the MUFON organization. And uh, the idea was that we paid MUFON in order uh, to receive information on uh, UFO activity that was happening anywhere in the United States. Um, And and we had a uh, weekly and sometimes more frequent teleconference called with uh, the MUFON program manager of this uh, project. His name was Richard Lang. Uh, We had program managers that were in weekly uh, communication with with MUFON. The end result was a very, very efficient collaboration where um, dozens and dozens of cases were funneled through the pipeline. And um, either BAS, OSAP investigators were deployed to investigate some of these cases, or MUFON investigators were were deployed to investigate these cases. And um, OSAP bas paid for expenses like hotels and flights and per diems in order for MUFON investigators to investigate. So over that period of of time during 2009, um, we we had a very, very collaborative working relationship with Richard Lang and his team um, in which Uh, We felt it was an extremely productive relationship. And I know Richard Lang has gone on the record saying that uh, the relationship between OSAP, BAS and MUFON was also very productive. Um, I'm not uh, familiar with other organizations in the United States, but I think that MUFON does have uh, very good coverage for gathering a lot of different cases from all of the different states in the United States I'm not really aware of what their capability is internationally, um, but I, I I believe back in 2009, MUFON were a very, uh, very efficient organization. Now, I know there are groups in the
0: United States, many of them associated with Dr. Stephen Greer, that claim to be able to initiate contact of some sort or communication or to conjure up or Call down UFOs, and, and uh, so they go out at night, and they seem to be able to precipitate sightings of of some sort. It would seem as if there might be the potential for two-way interaction. Uh, have you looked into that at all?
1: No, we have not, um, and and that is something uh, we we've heard about uh, Dr. Greer's. Um, activities but um we have not actually had the had the opportunity to look into it um i, I know that there are other people and even I, again i think of brazil where where um there has been uh, claims of people being able to quote unquote summon ufo activity uh through a form of meditation um analogous to what uh, Dr. Greer and his team have claimed. Uh, we have not really looked into that, that whole aspect.
0: I, of course, documented something similar in my book, The PK Man. Uh, so I'm inclined to think that uh, the potential for some sort of uh, reciprocal uh, interaction between uh, the humans and uh, whatever this phenomenon is, it's not a dead possibility that something might yet emerge.
1: I I, I would tend to agree with you just from uh, you know just from what we were discussing earlier about um, that the 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 focus on human consciousness and the use of human consciousness during meditation. Um, you know, uh, I was very intrigued with um, one of Bernardo Castrup's um, Scientific American articles in which he talked about uh, the the so-called dashboard um, effect or the, the, the dashboard model of human perception, which is basically you know that it's the equivalent of flying in 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 an airplane and reading all of the instruments in the airplane uh, um, by means of the, of the dashboard, but um, outside the airplane is something completely different, and the uh, you know the Castro model would be, you know, human five senses is essentially an aircraft dashboard, and we really have no idea what's outside that dashboard. So, in in line of what you're suggesting, you know, maybe the 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 act of meditation, or the act of remote viewing, or um, you know, uh, shamanic uh, activities is a way of going outside this dashboard and accessing um, what's outside the dashboard. I, you know, it, it's a it's sort of a, right now it's in the realm of speculation, but um, I do see it as, as, a, as a possibility. Um, you know, various DMT uh, associated exercises, even though, you know, I, I, I would be cautious about DMT in the absence of very well studied uh, cultural um, support, Uh, Because I think DMT tourism and uh, ayahuasca tourism uh, may even have, uh, you know, negative effects in in the long run when people really don't know what they're doing. But I guess the point is that there may be modalities that we already know about in terms of enhancing our human consciousness ability to interact with these UFOs and, you know, uh, we have never looked into what Dr. Dr. Greer and his team are, are doing. Well, it does seem that you're
0: suggesting that one important avenue, maybe not the only avenue, but certainly a very significant and not fully explored avenue for UFO researchers is to look more deeply into the nature of consciousness itself and the, uh, particularly the far reaches of consciousness and the powers of consciousness and how that would uh, intersect with all of these uncanny UFO-related reports.
1: Yes, I, I would agree with you. I I, I think um, I would categorize this in the you know as as, as high-risk research. Um, you know, if in, in an ideal world where there would be sort of a, a a really robust UFO program going, I would recapitulate the full scope of OSAP and do both sensor-driven, um, you know, uh, measurements as, on UFO performance. I would also look at human effects, um, psychological and pathological medical injury, so all, all the way out through paranormal effects. But I would also have a separate line in the water um, associated with some high-risk investigations into how exact, how exactly human consciousness could possibly reach beyond uh you know the, the the metaphor of the dashboard so so i i believe you know that there's also um some unusually interesting correlations between the afterlife and uh, ufo's also i i mentioned a few a few of these uh um occasions when there seem to be crossover between ufos and the afterlife um, we you know i'm compiling a list of these uh overlaps and there are many different overlaps um again i would categorize this in the in the realm of high risk i think i think there's room for a mainstream uh well-funded robust ufo program but i also think there's room for um a smaller um, more focused program on how UFO inter- uh, may, may interact with human consciousness, or how co- human consciousness may interact with UFOs. You know, just just thinking back to the book that we we talked about uh, just just previously, Ingo Swann's book *Penetration*. One of the uh, one of the tasks he was assigned to do by Axelrod was actually to remote view the moon. And, um, you know, during his his journey of consciousness to the moon, he did interact with beings on the moon, allegedly. Uh, But those beings were extremely unfriendly. And uh, they essentially told him to get out of there. Um, Another uh, Michael Jordan remote viewer by the name of Joe McMonagall is also on the record with in uh, attempting to re- remote view UFOs And uh, Joe McMahonigal also got a very unfriendly uh reaction from uh, the denizens of of the UFO realm uh when he his consciousness started probing uh, so you know maybe maybe there's a sort of a, a a note of caution there uh with respect to how you uh human consciousness could interact with UFOs um, for example, I've, I have not heard of any um, instances of the so-called hitchhiker effect as a result of uh, meditation summoning UFOs and all of that. I have no idea if there's any data on that. It's something I, uh, you know, that should be possibly looked into.
0: Colin, we've covered a lot of ground, and I know uh, in spite of that, we're still just scratching the surface. I hope to have several more conversations with you about this topic. I know that our viewers are fascinated. I know that we've had a very strong response to our previous conversation in, in this area, and I'm sure many of our viewers are interested to see what you yourself, with your enormous background in the field, are going to be doing next?
1: Yes. Well, I, I definitely would be happy to con- uh, continue this conversation, and uh, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to talk with you as always. Thank you, Colin, for being with me today. Thank you very much. And
0: for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.